0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, I'm sorry to say, I'm on holiday. So we're going to take this opportunity to repost this conversation I had with Sir Salman Rushdie just before the COVID pandemic. We talked about Cushote and the state
1: of America. I always get at least one really savage review saying uh, that my literary talent was in free fall, things like that. Anyway, but Anyway, but it's not But on the whole It's not James Wood settling school again. No, it wasn't James. No. No, I mean Martin Amos has this nice phrase where he says, When you publish a book, he says, you either get away with it or you don't get away with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think he's also, he came out that lovely line that said, All a writer Ray wants to read is 20,000 words of closely argued praise. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so it, was it was all right.
1: Good. It was a good publication.
0: But shot is a good place to start, if I can. I mean, you, you write in the book, or one of the many sort of narrators or writer figures writes in the book, that we're living in the age of anything can happen. Yeah. And can I say what did
1: you mean by that particularly? I mean, what... Well, what I meant is that things that would, be, would have seemed utterly improbable now happen on a daily basis. You know, I mean, I remember, actually, Ian McEwan was over here. We had, we had dinner together, and, and we said to each other that if we had presented to our publishers the plot of the last three or four years, they would have said, go away and think of something more plausible. <laughs> and actually, the implausible has now become every day.
0: Is that that a sort of challenge to somebody who works in a tradition where kind of crazy stuff happening is?
1: It does. I mean, it's one of the reasons, the book before this, you know, The Golden House was for that reason almost entirely realistic because I thought, you know, it's strange enough. (laughs) You don't need to add to that. But I mean, really what I've done is I've had three novels which have sort of come at America in very different literary modes, you know, they it was like two years, eight months, and 28 nights was like a like a fable, like an Arabian Night, yeah. you know, adult fairy tale. And then the Golden House was pretty much naturalistic, you know. And then this one uses all the tricks in the book, you know, so yes. I just, just take the whole bag out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. What was it made you think like? Because I mean, a lot of it, you know, Shereazad is a good example. You know, a lot of your work, maybe most of it, has worked taken a kind of previous myth or a previous story yeah. and played with it a and reworked it. it. Yes. And what made you think, right, now is the time to bust out the Night of La Mancha?
1: Well, it was two things. One was a conscious desire and the other was like a serendipitous thing. The, the conscious desire was actually, when I finished the previous novel, I thought, you know, I've just written two novels which almost entirely happen in New York City and I need to get out of town. You know, I need, I need to write something which has a broader panorama and isn't just in the Manhattan bubble, you know. So I had this idea to write a book about a road trip. And I actually, initially, I thought it might not be a novel. I thought I might take the road trip, you know, and just in a kind of tocqueville kind of way, go places and see what happens to you and and what you see, you know. And then I thought, no, you know, actually... I mean, maybe nothing interesting would happen, you know, and I, and I wanted to use... Did you worry
0: about also about the sort of observer's paradox, because you have Salma
1: R. wants to go and do her, yeah. you know, visiting no, the
0: Belt, and she goes, you know, you, you can't do that. Cause no, I think if I'm famous. in Phoenix,
1: Arizona, nobody knows who I am. <laughs> 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 That's not really a problem, you know. I mean, America is so big that you can actually get away from the little bit of it. A friend of mine who's actually very well known, somebody once said to him, Oh, you know, you're only famous on 20 blocks. <laughs> 20 blocks? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of like down oh, yes, yeah,
0: you, yeah. But
1: Anyway, the point is, you, yeah, can, yeah. you can get away from yourself in America, you know. And, but in the end, I thought, I just I want to be able to make it up. I don't, I'd rather. I mean, I've lived here 20 years now, and I have actually have traveled quite a lot around the country, you know. And so I felt I, I didn't feel I had to go to places to write about them because I'd already been there. You know, yeah. A lot of the places in the book are either like places I've been or are places I've been. I mean, one or two of the towns are imaginary. You know, the town of Beautiful in Kansas doesn't exist. But what happened was, see, sometimes the news helped because there was a terrible murder in in a town called Olatha in Kansas. It's also mentioned in Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. It's the next door town to where the murder happened, that murder happened. Anyway, two Indian software engineers having a drink in a bar. And a crazy guy came in and shot the place up and killed one of them and hurt the other one. You know? And there was, a, for no reason, just that they were brown-skinned. You know? And I saw an interview with the widow of the murdered man, which really touched me, where she was saying how long they'd lived there and they'd raised their children there and they felt that they, this was their home, you know, and, and then this happened. And she said, you know, and now I think, is there a place for us here? And I actually gave that line to somebody in the novel because I thought, in a way, I want to ask that question. You know? yeah. so, and then I discovered that Olatha is a Native American word which means beautiful. Oh, so, so you were away to the races. So I, so I just changed it to beautiful. And so, but, so there are places that are like places that I know, but a little bit made up. I mean, there's no town in New Jersey called Barringer, no. <laughs> where people are turning into Mastodon.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you need to kind of make clear. Yeah, yeah. at at this
1: moment that's not happening in the New Jersey area. (laughs) It might (laughs) yet. But anyway, so I just thought that, that I wanted to make up a road story, and I looked at a lot of, I mean, Kerouac, oddly, is not very helpful, because in Kerouac's, on the road, the road has no purpose. It's just, it's just wandering, you know. Whereas this was, I wanted this to be a journey with a purpose. And the book, one book that really did help Unusually, I think I mentioned it in the book somewhere to be clear about the homage, is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. You know, because yes, it
0: does not does. mention it.
1: <laughs> because I, I, mean, I read it after all these years. I hadn't read it since it came out. And I thought, you know, okay, never mind Zen and never mind motorcycle maintenance, not so much. But, but what I really liked in it was the father-son relationship, the fact that there's a father and son going on a motorbike ride across America to kind of get closer to each other.
0: Well, I was going to say, it, it, it's a book that looks like it's going to be about romantic love yeah. and
1: actually ends up being about father and sons. About other kinds of love. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I thought that that's, I feel that these other kinds of love are relatively not written about in literature, you know, I mean, there's endless, this much about romantic love, you know, but about parental, father, I mean, parent-child love or sibling love or, you know, loves inside families, you know, and damaged loves which often happen inside families, you know, and, and whether it's possible to repair that damage and heal things, you know, etc. All those questions I thought I wanted I mean, romantic love in the book is treated more or less comically, you know you, yeah. know. you know, because I mean it's a completely goofy idea of his that he thinks he can win the heart of this super celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's what I like about him is that he's absurdly optimistic, you know, in the face of all the evidence. <laughs> he says, you know, love will find a way. And I thought to propel a character of immense optimism across this America would yeah. be an interesting contrast.
0: You know? Exactly. Well, I mean, you, put, you put the opioid yeah. epidemic into yeah. it. I mean, what, what was it that made you think that was Well, again, it part was partly
1: that middle America is where that crisis is. You know, I mean, that, there's these small towns there where almost everybody's addicted. You know? So I thought if I'm going to send him on that kind of a journey, it just is something that the book needs to look at. I mean, there's another thing, which is that there's a family, personal family tragedy, which is that my youngest sister, ten years ago, died of what turned out to be an opioid overdose. And it turned out that she had been not known to me really quite seriously, had become very dependent on these things. She was living in Karachi, Pakistan, and where you can get anything at a corner pharmacy. And they actually press extra stuff on you. take more we don 't have to come back next week yes, well, that 's Mr Smile, it's a bit like that or Dr. Smile, smile yeah. So just, yeah well again, so i 'd so I'd had that you know that was ten years ago, but it, that kind of made it personal you know and, and over the last ten years i 've been really trying to find out about this stuff, and I eventually felt I knew enough to to write about it you know and actually doctor smile i mean that 's based on a true story, as they say you know. Actually, the guy's just gone to jail, so I guess I can say. There was an Indian-American pharmaceutical manufacturer. called His real name is John Kapoor. John, I think, was an Americanization, but anyway, he called himself John Kapoor. And he had a business, a factory, not where it is in the novel in Atlanta, but it was somewhere in, outside Chicago. And he or his company invented this thing, this sublingual fentanyl spray, And then he bribed doctors to prescribe it to people who didn't need it and became a billionaire. And then he got investigated and they finally caught him and they've just sent him away. I mean, I'm kind of, in general, interested in what Indian Americans get up to, you know, so i got to try and kind of keep an ear open, you know. And I thought, okay, well, that just gives me something I can use to tell this story in a storytelling way rather than in a kind of journalistic way, you know, it gives me a character. Yeah. And also, I thought, given that the novel is, you know, some of the novel is, a, is about the experience of racial prejudice, I thought it'd be good to have a bad Indian, you know, <laughs> you know, as, as well as the good ones. You know, so it's bad people on both sides. Yes, yeah. exactly. But you you're asking that I just wanted to oh, sorry, The thing yeah, about yeah. the Quixote* thing was that was the piece of serendipity that a few years ago it was going to be the 400th anniversary of both Cervantes and Shakespeare, three four years ago. Somebody asked me to write a piece about Cervantes and Shakespeare, comparing and contrasting. Sort of. And I mean I hadn't read Don Quixote since I was at college. I'd occasionally sort of opened it, but I hadn't read it. And so I thought, I'd better read it. And, and the thing that had happened since I read it the first time is that there are now much better translations. You know? So the book is much more vivid in English than the old Penguin Classics version that I read in the 60s which was a rather dull translation. I mean, now there's brilliant translations. And and so I really got excited reading it. I thought, oh, you know, this is really actually very, very good. You know? And then, because I'd been thinking about a, a road novel anyway, I thought, well, you know, it's obvious. And so these two things just clicked together.
0: You've got this whole layers of reality thing in it as well, That you know, in the sense that sort of Sancho invents Jiminy Cricket and yes, Quichotte yes. invents Sancho and yes, Donner invents Quichotte and the narrator invents yeah, yeah. I mean, is there a... Are you the inventor of the narrator or do, is it sort of turtles all the way down? No, I think the I'm, the, I'm the inventor
1: of the narrator. In fact, you know, in my life I've actually somewhat disapproved of books about people writing books. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I just think, you know... It's
0: a shameful confession for a postmodernist.
1: Yeah, I thought, you know... You get all these books which are about a writer writing a book about a writer writing a book, you know. And I think you know, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I mean, that side of the novel really, I hadn't planned that, you know. And then I'm working away at it, and suddenly this storyline shows up, and I think, what's this? And and for a while, I really was uncertain about whether to keep it in, you know. And I and I thought, okay, well, this character's arrived, and it's kind of interesting because it allows me to write about the relationship between a real life and a reimagined version of that life, you know, and, and that might be interesting. But I just gave myself permission to work on it for a bit, and if I didn't like it, to take it out again, you know. And for a while, I really was unsure about whether that should stay in. And then it just kind of, it just grew into the fabric of, of the book, and there was really no way to take it out. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this thing that I've disapproved of.
0: You know, as you say, it's a sort of book about a journey through this America. You've written quite explicitly in Joseph Anton about saying that your voice as a writer came, in some sense, from migration, from the experience of being cut off from your language,
1: your religion, your Mm -hmm.
0: physical race. Does America now feel like home? I I mean,
1: that's a good, you know, I ask myself this question. I mean, I think New York feels like home because I've lived here 20 years. I mean, I've lived here a very long time, but so does London. Because I lived there longer than I've lived anywhere else. Most of my close family is there, and my oldest friends are there. And I still, I mean, I go to Bombay, I feel at home there. I mean, even though it's transformed, I still have that, the place where you were born and raised, you know, you have a feeling of home about that place, which has made me mostly nostalgic.
0: Yes, I know Leif Shafak, who can't go back to Turkey at all. I know. Istanbul is her sort of exactly
1: yeah and orhan i mean i think does go back and forth but i i think he has to have security when he's there you know that's the la- i haven't seen orhan for a while but that's the last i heard but elif i think doesn't go back at all no yeah no but i mean i could go back it's not a problem but 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 bombay has just grown and changed so much the, the little bit of town what used to be called bombay is now called south bombay because the city has sprawled onto the mainland but that little bit south bombay I mean, a lot of it is still like it used to be. You know, and so one can go there and, and feel nostalgia. You know, but America, whether America feels like home is a question I can't answer, really. I, don't, I think America is a battle right now.
0: Yeah, has it, I mean, how has your sense of it been altered by the arrival of, I, I presume I'm not forward in saying someone you disapprove of, the yeah, president. No, I mean, it's,
1: until the day of the election, I was convinced he would lose.
0: Well, you and everyone else. <laughs>
1: and I think he was convinced he would lose. <laughs> and if you look at the video of him on that night, it's like a man in shock. <laughs> <laughs> well, that on the other side of the Atlantic as well. Exactly. So there's always been that America, there's always been that dark side, you know, but I felt that that was not capable of rising up to take over, and that was wrong. Similarly in England, you know, I mean, I think the the most bemusing thing about, about Brexit is that. It showed me a picture of the British, which I didn't think the British were like. You know, I, I, I thought they were, if I had been asked to describe the national character, it would not have been in these terms. You know, I would have thought, I mean, not exactly Napoleon's Nation of Shopkeepers, you know, but that but, but it's a kind of pragmatic, commonsensical people, not prone to fantasy extravaganzas, you know, which, which transform the nation. And then it turned out that actually that is what they were prone to. You know? It's, it's. I, think, I mean, maybe it's salutary for for an artist to be shown that he hasn't completely understood the thing he was writing about. Is there
0: is a sense in which Trump is a kind of bit of a Salman Rushdie character. You know? Well,
1: the thing about Trump, I think, is that in, in many ways he's not a character. I think he he's a series of performances. You know, I mean, I think he said whatever is useful to him to be at a given moment he will be that. So, you know, earlier in his career, he was very pro-choice. Now he is very anti-abortion without any sense of a problem, you know, in that in that shift. Yeah, you know, I mean, he used to be a supporter of Bill Clinton, you know, and I used to party with Bill and Hillary in New York. Now, lock her up. You know, without any sense of a problem. He I think he reinvents himself all the time. Yeah. You know, and I don't know who the character is underneath all those masks. And to my mind, makes him not interesting to write about because there, there's no there there. And also I think what I felt in the Golden House as well as this book is that in some ways Trump is a consequence, not a cause. That there, this rift in America had been growing up and deepening and the black president enormously energized the far right in this country and they found their guy. One of the reasons why Trump doesn't appear in Shot in is that I thought there's something more interesting than Trump, which is America.
0: Well, you, meant, you mentioned him there. You call him the fabulous president. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's that a, is a kind, kind of, of kind passing
1: of... joke about him. Yeah. But I wanted the book not to be about Trump's America, but about America you know, and what has happened in it. And you can deduce from that that, that, that this current administration comes out of that. You know. So Anyway, I also really wanted it to be funny. It is funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wanted it to be funny. I mean, I, I when I, you know normally I don't show anybody work in progress. I, mean, I feel too nervous about it, really. You know, but when I, I mean, this book is in many ways so kind of formally strange. You know, that when I would written the dra- first draft of about I got not sixty, seventy pages, something like that, and I actually asked Andrew Wiley if he'd look at it. And I said, you I said, I know it's weird. You know but you have to tell me if it's weird in a good way or weird in a bad way. And the thing about Andrew is that he relentlessly tells the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he, he will not soft soap you, which is a great thing to have in an agent. Anyway, so he read it and he called me up and he said, look, I'm not exactly sure where you're going with this because it could go in a number of different ways and until I read more, I can't say. But he said, what I think is, it's the funniest thing you've ever written. And I thought, okay, funny is good. Funny is
0: very good. Can I just parenthetically, you're a US citizen now, aren't you? So you, oh, yeah, yeah. you, get, you get a vote. Would you say, you know, who, you're, who you think is in well, the primaries might
1: get Trump? I mean, look, I mean, it's, just, it's just been transformed yesterday, you know, what's happening because of, because of Biden's performance yesterday. I think it's a two-horse race now. I, I mean, I think Bloomberg, I suspect, might even pull out today. Because to spend $500 million and and win American Samoa. <laughs> Seems like a poor result, poor, poor reward on your investments. He had one good joke, Bloomberg, in his campaign. I saw him on television and the interviewer was saying, "You know, do you really think that what America needs right now is a couple of billionaires to fight it out for who runs the country? And he said, who's the other one? <laughs> Which I thought was actually genuinely, whoever wrote that line needs a pat on the back. (laughs) But no, I mean, I feel the candidate I liked from the first day was Elizabeth Warren. I thought she was the most impressive. The one who actually had, was not indulging in petty backbiting and sniping, but was actually looking for a plan for how to take the country forward and and was very pragmatic. She said she had, you know, her slogan was, Elizabeth has a plan for that, you know, and, and... I really liked her, and it's in some ways this is a very backward country, and certainly in its attitude to women in power, it's very backward. You know, it's, it's still the Flintstones over here. You know? <laughs> and I feel that if Elizabeth Warren were a man, she would be the candidate. Because she's not a man, she has no chance. And now I think the question is who's the running mate? Because the women's vote. Is going to win the Democrats the election if if they win. That's what's going to do it. That's what won them the midterms. Women came out to vote against Trump in very large numbers. Black women, like 90% of black women, voted against Trump. And even white women who had, by, by a majority voted for him in 2016. That change shifted a little bit. And actually it would be nice to have a woman of color. And I mean, my vote for the running mate would be Stacey Abrams. I think that would that would make the left happy without alienating. The middle of the road. And she's kind of great, Stacey Abrams. You know. There was one appalling suggestion that Biden might ask Hillary Clinton to be his running mate, which would, I think, be a suicide move. You know, that, that's how to guarantee the yeah. return <laughs> of Trump. you know. energizing his bank. Yeah. But I mean, it's very interesting. And I was so wrong last time. What was so strange, though, when I was writing The Golden House, I mean, I'd written almost all of it before the election. I had to do a bit of tweaking after, but not that much. Then while I, as a private citizen, was pretty convinced that Hillary was going to win, the book wasn't. You know, the kind of logic of the book was going absolutely in the other direction. and I was just following it.
0: Your books know things that you don't.
1: Exactly. I mean, it really is true. I mean, a lot of writers say this, but I think I've discovered it a number of times, you know, that the book is more intelligent than you are, you know. And even I remember on election day going to vote, thinking, okay, tonight we will have a woman president. And it wasn't just me because that day at 6 p.m. there was an event at the New York Times in the theater in the New York Times building. Invited audience and all their heavy hitters, you know, starting with the Dean Baquet and going through all their major political commentators, all there. Not one of them had a clue what was gonna happen. They were all patting each other on the back about how well the Times had reported the campaign and how it was a, had been a real victory for the mainstream media, that they'd kind of set the agenda, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the editor said, we've been arguing about what should be the headline tomorrow, and we've decided that it should say, Madam President. This was at 6.45 p.m. At 9 p.m., Trump was president. At 6.45 p.m., the New York Times didn't know. So... Yeah, the age of anything that could happen. The age of anything could happen. Krishan, you've got you
0: know one of the features of the book which is most sort of delightful is he's you know he's been driven mad by television yeah. by watching too much yeah. TV. You know here we are in the land of the Flintstones, and you have I think it's brother who talks about says a, a sort of mind numbing junk culture I think mm. is the phrase mm-hmm. you come up with, but it's plain from the depth of engagement in the narrative that you kind of love this mind-numbing junk culture. I mean, there's a sort of paragraph of such scholarship about The Bachelor through its various seasons. (laughs) you think this is more than
1: just a bit of Googling? No, no, it's not Googling, it's research. You know, Googling is broad and shallow. I actually don't like it, but I thought, if I have this character, I have to, I have to understand this stuff, you know, otherwise I can't write the character. And so I had to put myself through a kind of crash course in all of this. I mean, normally in my house, it's never on the Bravo Channel, which is like wall-to-wall reality television. But yeah, I mean, I did my due diligence, you know, and it wasn't just, I mean, it was watching the stuff. I did watch, I mean, I wouldn't say a huge amount, but I watched enough episodes of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and all these other things, Project Runway and, you know, the competition shows as well as the kind of life substitute shows, you know, pretend to be real life, but are actually all manipulated. And that really is a kind of Cervantes thing, because what Cervantes was doing was to take on the literature that he despised. You know, uh, of
0: trash romances.
1: Yeah, those kind of knights in shining armor and damsels in distress, the stuff that there was a lot of that about at that time. It was very popular. And he genuinely felt that that was rotting the brains of its readers, you know? and so Don Quixote and Sancho become the kind of comic destruction of all those people galloping around with swords trying to save things. So,
0: so with that kind of background, this sort of, not ad mass, but whatever mass it is, a huge pile of sort of you know, junk culture, things, culture, I mean, I'm wondering how the sort of, I suppose, literary novel or so-called literary novel Responds. I mean, is your feeling that what you need to do is engage with it, yeah. take it in, yeah. pull it in? Like I mean, this is the know. thing
1: that I learned early on from Charles Dickens. You know, I thought the thing that I admired about reading Dickens was how much of the culture he could write about. You know, I mean, it, he's the absolute opposite of an ivory tower writer. You know, he can he can write about pickpockets and archbishops. You know, and, and everything and little shopkeepers and. Australian convicts and all human life is there. I thought that means that he got out and about. You know, you don't do that sitting in your room. You know, you've actually got to go and find out. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm interested to be in the journalism school because I've always thought there's an aspect of the novel at its best which is reportorial. You know, which which goes beyond what the writer knows. You know, the, the writer has to go and find things out, and I've always admired that. As a as a kind of way of thinking about about fiction, you know, I always hope that by the time I finish a book, I know something I didn't know when I started. I mean, in the Golden House, I had to do a lot of finding out about trans culture, you know, about, about gender identity, all that, which is one of the most fraught subjects here. Oh yes, right, so, and right and, a, and in the UK yeah. as well. and so I'd, I knew that if I didn't come to understand it properly, I would be, as they say, dragged. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: would have been very
1: much dragged. Yeah. And what is so interesting to me is that when the book came out, that just didn't happen at all. I mean, not at all. And that was comforting to me because it made me feel okay that I, I listened carefully and I got, tried to just get this right, you know. And I think that's the thing that, as I say, Dickens was a great guide in that. You know? and, and not only Dickens, but the novel of that time. You know, Tom Jones and comic novels, comic novels, but that that what what Henry James called loose, baggy monsters. You know, these books that just tried to be encyclopedic. tried try to take in as much of the world as they could get in. You know, and I guess that's the area of writing that I'm in too. The kind of encyclopedic thing. You know, but
0: well, it does. You do kind of gather in multitudes. I mean, do you? What do you say to the sort of contention? Some some say, you know, actually the novel's in a different place in the culture than it used to be, probably when you started writing, that now, you know, the number one narrative mode is, you know, uh, television. long-form television. Yeah.
1: Do you think there's truth in that? Yeah, I do, actually. I mean, I, I, it's, it's quite clear that that's the most brilliant innovation, you know, of our time, is, is long-form drama on television. And I'm interested in that. Without, I mean, I did once try and have a go I was asked by the Showtime network here to come up with an original idea. And I had a sort of science fiction idea that I, that I pitched at them and that they liked. And I spent a year, I mean not only doing that, but during the course of a year I wrote four or five drafts of a pilot. You know, and, and each time I would meet with them, they would say how brilliant it was. They would say, this is like the best thing in the history of ever. and and it will be like nothing else that there's ever been on television and we are so 100% behind it. I got that. And then after a year, I got a text message which said we've decided not to go in this direction. That's a boom. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I hate wasted work. It's, it's the worst thing in the world is, is work that doesn't come to fruition. And I used bits of that some I used bits of that science fiction idea in this actually that that the parallel world thing, but done differently.
0: Oh, with your evil sense, evil sense, yeah. yes, yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who we won't have to discuss who's modelled on. No, of course not. No, no, because whoever's modelled on can very very deep pockets. It's a slight sidetrack, but funny names. It feels to me like there's a lot of sort of. I don't know, it's right, with Pynchon in your, you know, you
1: love those strange names yes, and Sydney, silly names. Yes, Benny Profane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. Do you and work again, hard on the names, do you think? Yes, though? I do. And again, Dickens, you know, the name, Dickens is the most wonderful namer. And, well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons why is that in India, when people choose names for children, they think very hard about the meaning of the name. So it's not just that's a name in my family or it's a name I like the sound of, et it says, What does it mean? What does it tell us this child is going to be? You know. So I've kind of have that idea about the naming of characters. You know, I try and think about the implications of the name, you know, not just do I like the name or not. You know? So it comes out of that history. Salman means, of course, peaceful, obvious naming. Yes. <laughs> I, I think also Saul Bellow is a wonderful namer. You have a gangster called Rinaldo Cantabile. <laughs> So yes. slightly operatic, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I've always responded in books to people who are wonderful at naming. You know, and I, I think a lot about it. Yeah.
0: To Return briefly to the, this thing of the place of the novel in the culture. You, I mean, Will Self is perpetually, you know, every time he writes a new novel, he writes an essay
1: saying, you know, the novel, the is, novel dead. is dead. Yeah. Do you buy that at all? No, I don't really. I mean, I think look, the novel was always a niche market, always. You know, I mean, the number of people who read—I no- don't believe the number of people who read novels now has diminished particularly. You know, I mean, they may be reading, you know, Harry Potter, but, I mean, the, but the people who read novels are a very dedicated crew. They love novels and they stick around with them. You know, and, and this is why the death of the novel endlessly prophesied never happens, yeah. because actually there are enough people for whom the novel is important for the novel to survive and, and do quite well. Also, of course, the novel is still the seedbed of everything else. Almost everything that you talk about on television or all that comes from a book. So it's still the origin point of of the imagination in some way.
0: The sort of, as it were, snootiness around literary novels seems to have gone down. I'm wondering how much you sort of welcome that. Because, you know, you're someone who seems at least to have started with, you know, the things you fell in love with were sort of science fiction first. Yeah. You know, I did magical realism, which was a big thing for you. Was the attraction you saw in that the same as the attraction of science fiction?
1: Yeah, similar. I mean, what happened is that when my first novel, Grimas, came out, a friend of mine who read it—one of the eight people who read it—said <laughs> to me that it reminded him of Latin American magic realism. And I said, "What's that?" <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. You know. And he said, "You should—you've never read it?" I said, "No." Who are the writers? And he said, "Well, there's this writer called Gabriel Garcia Marquez." And, there's this book called 100 Years of Solitude, and you should go and buy it today. And I said, really? 100 years of solitude? <laughs> I said, that's a good book? He said, don't be an idiot, go and buy it. So I did, I, mean, I went and bought it. And then, of course, from page one, you're lost in that wonderful world. You know. And, and then I read a lot of it. Then I read, a lot of, I read all the other people, Carlos Fuentes, Vallejo Carpentier, Julio Cortázar, Mario Vargas Llosa, although he's more realist on the whole. And I did, I did respond to it very strongly. And one of the things I felt reading 100 Years of Solitude was that the world being described was like a Latin American version of the world that I knew from India and Pakistan. You know, that this also a culture with an oppressive colonial heritage, different colonizer, but same principle also a world in which there's a great separation between the rich and the poor, also a world in which there's a kind of conflict of understanding between the village and the city, also a world that's very multicultural with people coming from all over the place, in which certain languages are privileged and others are pushed down. I thought, you know, it's also a world in which there are dictators, military people who take over, and there's a kind of level of corruption that was very familiar to me. And I thought, you know, this is like what I know translated into Spanish. You know, it's just like, (laughs) you know, it's as if the culture of India and the culture of Latin America, which have so little theoretically in common with each other, actually have a lot in common with each other. And then I I, I was told this thing about how the great Argentinian publisher, Victoria Ocampo, had had gone to India and had met Rabindranath Tagore and may or may not have had an affair with him, not clear. But anyway, became very... Enamored of his work and decided that she was going to publish everything by Tagore in Spanish and commissioned translation. So Tagore is there. There's a lot of Tagore. The whole of Tagore is there in, in, in quite good Spanish translations and has been very influential on Latin American writers who call him Tagore. But I thought that's so interesting that that, who would know that that connection was there, you know? And, and then it turns out that all these magic realists had all read The Thousand and One Nights.
0: Ah, oh, so it's a sort
1: of... So it goes both ways, you know what I mean? And, and I thought, oh, I see this. I see how these cultures have somehow been talking to each other. You know, and then I thought, I guess I'm in that conversation.
0: Yeah. Actually, speaking of just a parenthetical point, mm-hmm. but, you know, you've been very associated with this idea of a sort of post-colonial... Well, and you've won not only the Booker, but the Booker de Tutti Bookers for Midnight's Children. What, what was your reaction when... They announced that the Book of Pride was was going to be open to American, Americans, to yeah. everybody, because, you know, some said people like Rushdie would have struggled to, or would have had less chance.
1: I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I have no idea, really. I mean, I think I think why not is my view. You know, I think it's a, if Canadians are allowed in, it seems bizarre to think that that border disbars anybody living south of the border. I thought, let it be about the best book in the English language, you know, yeah. that year. Why not? Why not know, why not I mean it, it so I, I didn't particularly object to it, you know, and I know people still do, and I mean of course, it would be nice if there was reciprocity because here the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize don 't allow british writers yeah in, or, or anyone who's not an American citizen. well you have both parts of the cherry now do well yeah, except I think they haven't they haven't thought of me as an American writer i mean Marlon James got got nominated for for the National Book Award this year, and he called up and he said, I guess I'm American now. <laughs> no. <laughs> because You know, he's from Jamaica. He reached a point, some, they somehow thought, okay, Marlon's inside, you know. I think I'm still not quite seen as an American writer, maybe not even by myself, so it's all right. I don't get very exercised about prizes, you know, I and mean, I, think, I think the thing about prizes is they're very nice when you win and they don't matter when you don't. It's
0: a good position to take.
1: Well, to come
0: back again to Keyshot. You took, in the book, there's this idea that I think it's Sancho has mm. of intuiting that Brother's there and he thinks there's an author. Yes, there's somebody, yeah, up there. somebody up there. There's somebody up there in another dimension. Yes. Is that God? Is that God? I mean, all the way through your career, you know, you're a secular writer. I know. Who's very, very interested
1: in religion. Yes. Why is that? I mean, good question. But I think it's because the world I grew up in was a world in which it was everywhere. I mean, as it happened, my personal family, my nuclear family, my parents were not particularly religious. I mean, my father wasn't religious at all. And my mother's the extent of religion was she didn't want us to eat pork. We were a non-pork-eating Muslims. That was it. You know, and we didn't observe anything. And my father was absolutely secularist and, and not interested in religion, but very interested in the philosophy of Islam. The reason I know about people like Ghazali and Ibn Rushd and so on is that my father introduced me to
0: them. Ibn Rushd seems to be one of your sort of personal talismans. He sort well, of goes because, because that's this.
1: why my father made up the family name based on his fondness for Ibn Rushd. Rushdi is not an ancient surname. My father made it up. My grandfather wasn't called Rushdi. So yeah, and I had to find out about this person, and, and actually, he is a very sympathetic thinker to my way of thinking. You know, so. I mean, if you grow up in that world where religion is so much a part of the explanation of everybody's daily life, you know, then you have to pay attention to it. And now, I mean, the thing that I would never have thought, like when I was at Cambridge, we would argue about lots of things, but we wouldn't argue about religion. You know, there, I mean, there was Vietnam and there was civil rights and there was you know, sex and there was drugs and there was rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, there was plenty to engage us. But religion just seemed to be a, just not a subject. You know? I mean, the idea that that would become, once again, somewhere close to the center of things, you know, I would have found it absurd if you had told me that when I was 21 years old. You know? And yet that's what happened. And also the
0: extent to which you, I mean I know you're not going to want to go over and over yeah. and issue again, but it is that kind of monolith, you know. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: No, I mean, I, you know, I, I thought, obviously there are people who are religious and that's fine, you know, and I—not my business—but the idea that it would become a public political force, a powerful social force again, I could not have foretold. You well, know. you
0: talk about your experience. I mean, you were a mm-hmm. sort of patient zero. The way you put it was, I think, in Joseph Anton, didn't you say it was the first blackbird black on the climbing frame? <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it did feel. I mean, I thought that at the time. You know, that wasn't a literary device that I came up with when I wrote the book. I remembered, in the middle of it, remembering Hitchcock's The Birds. You know, and, and, and thinking, when there's just one bird sitting on a climbing frame, you don't have to draw any conclusion from it. It's just a bird sitting on a climbing frame. You know. But later, when there's a million birds sitting on the climbing frame, you think, oh yeah, there was that first bird. Yeah. You know, and I think that sort of is what happened with the satanic verses.
0: Is it something that, that's sort of still, still with you as well? I mean, Does no. it still affect your life? No, it only
1: affects my life when I talk to journalists. <laughs> I mean, really, literally, it otherwise has no impact on my life. You know? and, I mean, it's been 20 years since I required any kind of protection. And I mean, I, I go everywhere I want and I talk. But, to does it sort know?
0: of annoy you that, I mean, partly because the likes of me are interested in it still. And it is frustrating. Very, I mean, does it change, you know, in the way, I mean, I talked to Brett Easton Ellis a few months ago and he said, yeah, I get it you know, American Psycho is going to be on my gravestone.
1: Yeah. Well, know, I mean, does it
0: sort of distort your canon in the public eye in a way that you're like, actually, I'd rather this wasn't the book. But I mean, it's yes. one of two books. I yeah, I mean,
1: well, what I, for people who haven't ever picked up a book of mine, I think it's a deterrent. You know, I think it makes them think of me as some kind of arcane, religious heretic and not interesting to them. And I can't tell you how many letters I've had from people saying that they had thought that and then somebody pushed a book of mine into their hands and they discovered another writer than the one that they had assumed that i was i get all these letters saying who knew that the, you were funny <laughs> <laughs> and i say well people who read my books know <laughs> but yeah it feels like it feels exactly like that it feels like the albatross around the neck and and put it this way that. The, the Satanic Verses was the fourth novel that I published and the fifth book, one non-fiction book, The Jaguar Smile. This is my 19th book and my 14th novel. So most of my life as a writer has happened since then. And, and to be constantly dragged back into the late 1980s is boring. And, and that's why I like it. In the last few books, these three American novels, maybe because of their subject matter, that people have not been reviewing these books in the light, in the of, the light of, of that, you know. So I think, you know, maybe... In the light of that, why did,
0: if it's this Albatross, why did you write Joseph Anton and, and because, make that the focus of it?
1: Well, because I knew that at some point that story had to be told and I didn't want somebody else to do it. I thought, this is my story, I'm a writer, I don't want somebody else to write my story and me to read it and think they've got it all wrong. At least the first version I'm going to do. You know, and I've, I waited a long time, you know, I mean, I didn't want to write it immediately that things got easier. I thought the last thing I want to do is to go back into that for a few years by writing about it. So I just thought I'm going to leave it and one of these days there will be a voice in my head saying do it now. One of the things that really helped is I sold my literary archive to Emory University because I was teaching at Emory uh-huh. before I was here. And they did a just magnificent job of cataloguing it, which took them several years, actually, because I just gave them masses of paper and cardboard boxes that they had to, and old computers, that they, and they had to sort through. all. Once they'd done it, I would send this master index, which had everything that they had in clearly searchable form. You know? And I thought, now I can actually write that book, because otherwise I would have had to do that in order to have all that material at my fingertips. And I would probably never have done it, you know so and now I could say to them, "I want these journals, and like twenty four hours later I had them you know so so it made it possible you gave
0: them all your private journals as well, yeah, yeah
1: goodness yeah there's a lot of stuff that is embargoed we, i mean actually it took us the thing that took most time in the negotiation was over a year of trying to work out what would be public and what would be embargoed
0: when you when you wrote that book, were you sort of thinking? Were you worried about the danger? That, you know, this is going to be an overshare. This is going to look like score settling. Did you? I mean, were you able to write unselfconsciously?
1: I tried to. I mean, I think you know, the, there's the, the principle of Rousseau, which is if you're going to do it, tell as much truth as possible. Otherwise, don't do it. I remember Doris Lessing once called me and said that she was going to write a memoir, and she said, "I'm very worried, Salman." She said, "Because you know, when I was younger, I was a very attractive woman, and, and I had relationships with a lot of." very well known people. And what should I do about that? And I said, Well Doris, you know, if you're gonna write the book, you have to write the book. You know, otherwise don't write the book. And she said, Well, volume one is probably okay because I think everybody's dead. <laughs> 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 but volume two might be a bit of a problem. But is your attitude write the book? Because you're you're quite personal in that book. Yeah. Including I mean, about thought,
0: your love life and other things. Yeah,
1: but I you know, I didn't see it as score settling. In fact I showed everybody everything that I was going to say. And if they asked me to remove things, I removed them. You know, I wasn't trying to get anybody. I was just saying, if you want to know about the life that I led, this is the life that I led. You know, in that time.
0: There is this one. I mean, in a way, to me, the most piercing bit of the book is the moment where you're taken to Paddington Green police yes. station and you say, you know, you're, you've been in hiding for yeah. ever so long, and you kind of. Give them you Crack. You crack. You yeah, give no, them something. Wor-
1: worst day of my life. Worst day of my life. And I remember coming out of that meeting and calling my sister and saying, look, you know, I don't know what I've done, but I've done this. And she said, have you lost your fucking mind?
0: <laughs>
1: Always there with comfort. Yeah, but she was right. Did it feel like there'd been a moral test that you'd failed? Uh, yes. Yeah, it did. And in retrospect, as I said in Joseph Anton, I think... That was the moment where I felt like I hit bottom, you know, and, and that's quite useful because then you know where the bottom is. Yeah. You know? And then after that, I thought, I'm just never going to be untrue to myself in that way again. Whatever happens, not doing that.
0: Did it also change your apprehension of the enemy, if you like, of what you're up against?
1: No, I kind of except that I, it made me, I wasn't interested in having that dialogue anymore because there wasn't any common ground. My view is everything is writable about, and everything is writable about in every possible way. And if you don't agree with that, then you destroy the art of literature. And so if there's going to be such a thing as literature, there has to be that freedom of subject matter and method. And if you have a group of people who say, no, because it is prescribed how this subject must be written about, and you can only write about it in this way. And if not, you're in trouble. You know, well, that's, there's no conversation to have there.
0: And I'm curious as to how you view the current sort of culture wars arguments about free speech that are going on.
1: Well, I, mean, I you know, look, I'm kind of a free speech absolutist. You know, my view is I'd rather know what people think than have it suppressed. And go under the carpet, you know, I think my view is that unpleasant ideas don't dematerialize if you ban them. you know they acquire sometimes the power of taboo and they actually increase in strength by being secret and covert and I kind of changed my mind you know because when I was living in England, for example, there's the Race Relations Act, and it makes it illegal to say racist things theory and and you could be prosecuted and. Find or sent to jail. And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I see nothing wrong with that. You know, seems fine to me. And that's where the UK was drawing the line. It's true that different cultures draw the line in different places. You know? and, and, and when I came here and started learning about First Amendment law, one of the interesting things about the First Amendment is that it draws the line in a much more extreme place, you know, which is what allows groups like the Ku Klux Klan to say what they say. As protected speech, and I was very interested, for example, that even the most right-wing of the Supreme Court judges, Justice Scalia, defended flag burning as a First Amendment right, you know, even though he personally detested it. You know, I mean, he loathed the people who did it, but he said it's a, it's a speech right.
0: So, do you think the the, the people on the left who are, so, I mean, actually, you'd be, you know, we, we hear a lot, particularly. You know, in the UK, so all American campuses are places that are hostile to the opening of, you know, serious debate and yeah. free art, free exchange of ideas. You're someone who teaches on an American
1: campus. Has that been your experience? Well, I'm te- I have to say to you, I know it's around because I hear it from other people. It has never entered my classroom that conversation. You know, nobody has ever said this book should have a trigger warning, or or such and such person should not be allowed to speak. On the campus was literally not. I mean, it's now 15 years that I've taught in the in the academy over here, you know, and both undergraduates and graduates. Now at the moment it's graduate students, but at Emory I was teaching a mixture of undergraduates and graduates. Literally not once have I had that experience. But I know that there there are things that are around which I, I worry a lot about. I mean, I was talking to another writer friend of mine who was talking about one of the students in his creative writing class who was ethnically Thai and had written a book about her community as immigrants. And he said it was the best book that anybody wrote, by far. You know. and, and when she had finished it, she said, of course I can't offer this for publication. And he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, it doesn't offer a suitably positive version of the Thai community. And so everybody is worried, these kids, starting about having to, be, having to represent. You know, yeah. That you, you can't just... Follow your imagination. You have to represent your people,
0: and you're not allowed to represent other people. Seems to be an nice. anxiety. I mean, I wonder what you made of the row of Janine Cummins, and American dirt. Did
1: you read that? I haven't read the book, but I mean, what, what I hear from people is that she just, in the way that I was talking about, having to do your homework. That there's a lot of Latino and Latina writers and Latinx writers who just say she got things wrong. It's you know, just not like that. Yeah, the, the Mexico she describes is not like that. And I don't know, I haven't read the book, and I have zero interest in reading it, actually. But if you believe that you can't write about other people's cultures, then nobody can write a book. If all you can do is write about what you know, then everything is a memoir and there's nothing else. We all go beyond our knowledge, all of us, all the time. You know? And the question is if we do it well or badly. You know, if you do it badly, then it's okay for people to have a go at you. you know? and if you do it well, then people don't have a go at you on the whole. You know, That's what I was saying about the transgender character in The Golden House, you know, that, that I feel, okay, maybe I did it all right because nobody had a go at me yeah. in, a, in a very, very volatile atmosphere, which there it was around that subject. But what I think, you see, is, is sad is that the censorious language which used to come from the right and the old is now coming from the left and the young. And it seems upside down to me. The, the young are supposed to be the ones who are iconoclastic, tearing things up, wanting to reject the way, the, the narrative that they've been handed, and find their own narrative, etc. For the young to be conservative and saying, "Okay, this stuff is off limits," that seems odd to me. What is that? Is well, it's, it's very easy to blame the internet for everything. So, so maybe I won't. <laughs> um, but there's a culture of fear of being dragged, that, you know, that if, that if, if you... if you, you say
0: somewhere that, that had you been attacked in the age of the internet...
1: It would have been worse. It would have been worse. It would have been worse, because, it, because it, there's a kind of mob rule aspect of the internet. Very, very rapidly summon a mob, an, an online mob, you know, and I think, and also information is communicated so much faster, you know, that, that within the blink of an eye, everybody in the world is, yeah. on, is on the same page, you know, so, yeah, it would have been worse. I mean, the worst technology that existed at that time was the fax machine. It's and, pretty uh, bad. <laughs> and the fax machine was used to disseminate flyers, you know, with, uh, with bullet points that, that people should use to attack me. And, I mean, that was powerful enough. Yeah.
0: I'm curious how disappointed you are in the internet in that sense, because you'd think, as a, you know, you're, you're a writer who historically has been all about Crossing boundaries, bringing in things yeah. from different registers, tones, genres—the macaronic, the kind of you know there, immediate I, and baggy and capacious—and you think the internet is
1: you know a rusty machine. We should love it. I was of that opinion, you know, for a long time. I just think, I think something's gone wrong. I mean, I'm talking about social media now, because the internet itself, which you know, has all sorts of material of of value, but, but the other thing it has is garbage coexisting with truth and looking exactly the same. And I think it's one of the things I was writing about in this book is that when truth and untruth look like they have the same authority, you know, it becomes very difficult for people to tell which is which. So you could go on, for example, anti-vaxxing sites, you know, and and they look as medically authoritative as, as their opposites. And and they have all kinds of like celebrity support from Hollywood stars.
0: Well, you'll in the book has a whole riff on errorism. Yes, you know. exactly,
1: well that's it. We have the, it's the age of the errorist. <laughs> I think that's one problem. And the other problem is this tribal thing that happens on social media. You know? And I mean, I do think about all media that they are morally neutral, that they're, they're, they're tools. You know? and, and the question is, how are they used? You know, I think there's many enormously valuable ways to use this new technology, you know, and especially you know, if you have, through a university, if you have access into the academic web, I mean, it's so incredibly valuable to someone like me. I remember when I was writing The Enchantress of Florence, I mean, I've been to Florence and so on, but there, but there was a moment where there was a, there's a scene in Genoa where the characters are meeting a historically real Genoese sea captain, Andrea Doria. And so I go into the thing, and I, not only do I discover like more essays about, I mean, it is one paragraph in the book, you know, it isn't that much, but I, I've discovered more about Andrea Doria than I ever needed to know. But I also found an essay which was about his house, and had photographs of every room in the house, and had a floor plan, and so on. And I thought, that's where the scene is going to be. It's going to be in this house. You know? And actually, this essay is giving me stuff which maybe I wouldn't get if I even went to the house. You know? So that you can get from the Internet. And that's, that's why I'm saying that, that Google is broad but shallow. You know? whereas, whereas when you get beyond Google into the depths of the Internet, it's very, it actually is very valuable. But it's being, I think, maybe it won't go on. It is, I believe, currently being misused. In these ways, partly by the propagation of lies. You know? I was wondering how much this
0: qualifies your, you know, free speech absolutism, because holding the line, mm. if, you know, in the idea that if everything's out there, you know, the sunshine is the best disinfectant, and so on. Mm. I mean, do you ever waver thinking that's an article of faith? It might not be true. Yeah.
1: No. I mean, I think there are places where it becomes very difficult to to hold that. And I mean, for example. Mark Zuckerberg's position about Facebook, where he will not take down lies that have been put out for political reasons, which are provable lies. He, he in a way, maybe because of the free speech absolutism, says, I'm gonna let that, I'm not gonna interfere in that. And I think he's wrong. Because I think, you know, I would like, at the very least, that there should be a mark on the page which says, this is not true. <laughs> you know? But I think it has been very dangerous what's happened in places like Facebook, the way in which public life has been distorted, you know, the way in which political life and elections have been distorted by, by the use of those things. And that's, that's only going to get worse because now that we have deep fake technology, you know, you can make up videos about people. I mean, you know, some of the, most of them right now are, por- are porno videos. You know, there's a, a lot of porno videos with Scarlett Johansson's face. You know, I think she said, I don't know what to you do.
0: You have it. to do the research. Anything.
1: Yeah. But she said, you know, I know that it's out there. There's, I, there's nothing I can do. But I do think that, that the way in which social media have been used to deform democratic practices, you know, I think, really is a problem.
0: But then as an old-fashioned free speech absolutist, presumably you're like, OK, how do we regulate this? Is there some... Answerable public authority that can sort what's a matter of opinion, what's a matter of conjecture, what's a matter of scientific theory, yeah. what's I mean, you know,
1: you know, a matter of know, There is already, there. there are sites, you know, there's, there's, there's like snopes.com, yeah. you know, which will tell you reasonably authoritatively. You need some kind of mega snopes.
0: Yes, but the stats on, on how far the debunks travel, even in yeah. you know, fact checkers, are read a
1: fraction. Yeah. yeah, I know. There's an area there which needs to be thought through, which I think is not, it's imperfect right now.
0: One thing that I, I meant to ask earlier, when we were talking about religion, which I was—it's a line in Fury that I found very interesting, where you said that the Christian and Islamic kind of cosmogonies, their moral universes, are different in that the Christian world is one of sin and redemption, and the Islamic one is one of honour and shame. Yes, is that? I mean, is that what you... That's believe? what is I that, think, yeah. Right.
1: I mean, I, also, I don't... Did I, did, did I say it in fury? I know I said it in shame, because that was sort of the idea of writing shame.
0: Maybe maybe it isn't uh,
1: shame. But uh, I may have said it again. I mean, who knows? What, one, of the, one of the problems of having written a bunch of books is that the danger of unintentional repetition. <laughs> I mean, I've had things where, like a, a Danish translator wrote to me and said, you know, on page 274 of your book, you have such and such character saying this. And as, of course, you know... 20 years ago in this other book on page 315, you have this completely different character saying the same thing. And I just want to know why you wanted to make an intertextual connection between these books in that way. Then you have to pretend you did it on purpose. Anyway, the point is I do think that, that guilt and redemption, sin and redemption are the axis of the Judeo-Christian world. You know? And there is no original sin in Islam. There's nothing to be redeemed. What there is, is honor culture. And very often that leads to attitudes to women in that women are seen to be the repositories of men's honor. And so if a woman is treated in a certain way, it dishonors the man and shames the woman. Because you know this old thing about the, the victim being responsible for their victimization comes out of that honor-shame axis. You know. so, so it is, it is different.
0: But sort of jumping between these two cultures has been a lot of what you've done. Do you think yeah. they are finally incompatible?
1: No, I think, the, I mean, what I think, if I had to describe myself in one sentence, I'd say, I would say I've mostly been a big city writer. And these three metropolises of Bombay and London and New York have been you know, a lot of what I've done. What happens in these big cities is that all these things mostly are compatible. You know, m- mostly people live side by side pretty well. Every so often they don't, but mostly people do.
0: Simon, thank you very much you. indeed for your time. Thank
1: you. Thanks. Thank you
0: very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't feel don't really you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast.com at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.